Hello, hello, and welcome to another exciting episode of Red Letters, where we discuss all things Jesus. I'm your host, David Johnson. Also, welcome to 4S. This is an episode of Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon. Let's go ahead and get started. And I am combining shows because I need to take a little bit of time off, devote myself to work and family and other projects. And so I am just going to put these two together. And when I say I'm taking a little bit of time off, I am uh, ending this season of Red Letters right here. For those of you who've been following following along, you know that I only have one more chapter to talk about in the book. And so this phase of Red Letters will be coming to an end today. Now, interestingly enough, I won't actually be talking about uh, almost anything that I wrote in the book. We are going to talk about something else. And so read the book, enjoying uh, Today's season finale will be on the end of the road. And today's Skeptics and Seekers Sunday Sermon, today's 4S, will also be on the same thing. So let me explain. Yes, there's a double meaning here, because why not? This is the end of the road for Season 1 of Red Letters. There will be a Season 2 if I have anything to do with it. But this has been a special season because this is the time when I have been able to super serve a single project. Uh, I don't have a lot of long-term projects that I follow through to the end. This was one of them, though. It started back in 2015, 2016, somewhere in there. A lot of things happened along the way, uh, but we finally got here. And somewhere throughout the course of that project, I knew that I was going to do something more than just write the book. And so this first season of Red Letters has kind of been in the works alongside the book. And it's just been a long time coming. And when it came, I was extremely excited. And as when you finish any project, there's a little bit of, uh, of dejection because it's over. <laughs> this thing that has defined you for so many years, it's just over. You're done. And you have to do something else. Well, okay. Uh, so, I've been writing for a long time, and um, books are kind of like that, you know, little things that you carry with you, and you become a part of, and they become part of you for a long time. And you can't wait to get to the end of it, and then you're sad when you do. And I felt that way when I finished Red Letters, elated and dejected, and I feel that way now as I come to the end of this period of discussing the book. So that's going to be well and truly behind me, and we will move forward with, with what Red Letters will be. But as I uh, hinted at early on in the season, uh, once getting to this stage, I would take a few weeks off. And I plan to take off at least until the, the beginning of January. If I recall correctly, I started this thing uh, in January of this year. 
And so it'll be a full year, and season two will obviously be different than season one. There are a lot of things that I'm working on, and I do need a little bit of time to put all of that together. But I also need a little time to just take a break. <laughs> I need a I need a little bit of a break. And uh, this is, while it's been a fun and fulfilling project, it's also been very hard, uh, very challenging. You You all have kept me on my toes, and... Uh, I have given everything that I had to give to the project, and I hope that you've enjoyed it, and I hope that I've been worthy of uh, of your patronage. Do not cancel your patronage. <laughs> You're not going to get charged for anything while I'm not doing shows. And as a matter of fact, you're not going to get charged for this show either. Because this is going to be a joint Red Letters and 4S. And it's going to go up for every everyone. And I'll probably do this, uh, something similar with uh, season finales and, and season beginnings. So just sit back and enjoy. I don't know how long this show is going to be. I have notes. My uh, write-up is pushing 4,000 words. I'm not going to talk about everything in the write-up. Uh, it's a pretty good read, if I have to say so myself. I enjoyed it. And um, so if you find this podcast, this episode, a little bit slow and rambling, don't turn, don't let that turn you off to the write-up. That's where all of my energy went. I just put the finishing touches on it not too long ago. And I'm really tired. And... Yeah, a little bit dejected. So uh, I will join in the conversation on Discuss as a full participant. And uh, I'll devote some time to that. But like I said, I'm going to take a little bit of a break from podcasting. Now, if you know anything about how I ran Skeptics and Caesar, C- uh, yeah, Skeptics and Seekers, that had seasons. And uh, I generally took... Uh, two or three months off during the summer. That's a longer break than what I plan to take for Red Letters here. But I did more podcasts pretty much every season. I did more podcasts during the break than I did during the regular run of the show. So I am clearly one who does not understand time off. Um, so I, I suspect that something like that might happen again. I'm going to actually try to apply some self-control and not do shows and write long blog posts during the off season. But I know that there's no way I'll be able to go without uh, including a supplemental here and there. And, uh, I want you to keep your patronage open because those supplementals, while they may or may not be open to the public, they will still be free. And I want you to have access to those. Just So just hang on right there. So that's the end of the road. But the end of the road does have a dual meaning, as I mentioned. As I talk about this final part of the book, as we end this part of our journey... I am reminded of another road, the road to Emmaus. In the Bible, there are a few stories with journeys. I think the road to Emmaus is my favorite road, my favorite journey. 
that story has always caught my attention, not always for the best of reasons, but it's, it is, I think, a genuinely interesting piece of literature. And so I want to take some time to give a little bit of a talk about the road to Emmaus and the end of that road, what those two disciples discovered at the end of their road. I think this is an extremely metaphorical story, and I think it has a lot to teach if you're a Christian, and maybe even a little bit to teach, or at least to riff off them, if you're not a Christian. Um, the story interest, uh, continues to be of interest and fascination to me, and I hope that I can share some of that with you today. So, I want to uh, begin this story by reading, let's see if I can find it here, by reading a quotation from a website. Here it is. It's way down in my notes. So, I am uh, skipping ahead, but goes like this. Uh, I do link to this, uh, so there will be a link. You can read the entire article uh, on the blog. And it says this, Emmaus is a metaphor for our lives. The road to Emmaus is a journey of discovery. Emmaus, where Jesus takes the bread, breaks it and gives it to the two disciples, is our final destination. Let us take a few moments and walk with the two disciples. This is where I want to begin my journey and exploration today. I want to begin with the road to Emmaus, and I want to move right into the 4S portion of the show. I have a, a sermon. It's not as long as the ones I usually do, but this is about 20 minutes, and I am going to, for the most part, let it play through uninterrupted. Uh, I think the preacher does a particularly good job here. Uh, he reads the story, which uh, saves me from having to do it. He talks about some of the things that I am going to talk about, and we might have a few notes uh, in the meantime. After that, we will continue on our journey until we reach the Red Letters season finale conclusion. Road to Emmaus. <laughs> All right, my last little caveat before we jump in. I have a 604 flight. Like the plane leaves at 604. So I'm going to preach and then I'm going to love you and leave you. I'm literally going to walk straight down the aisle. Jonathan Chan is right there. He's driving me to the airport. We're going to trust. <laughs> Pastor Don's looking at me like I'm crazy. We're going to trust that the Holy Spirit has been at work in this message. Ladies and gentlemen, open to Luke chapter 24. If you are physically able, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's word tonight. We are picking up at verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. All right. 
Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have just happened there in these days? What things, he asked, playing coy. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen, and he has appeared to Simon, that's Peter, Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, what I want to do is I want to give a couple of broad thoughts before we really get to the meat of this passage. Um, Just just some interesting things that are happening in this story. Uh, Number one, when is this story happening? Later in the afternoon on Easter day. So in the morning, Jesus is resurrected. And a little bit later in the day, he decides, hey, why not take a seven-mile walk in the dead of the afternoon, in the heat, with two random dudes that we've never seen before, we'll never hear from again. Another interesting thing, what we've done is we've come full circle from where we were one week before on Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we see a city that is welcoming a savior, but what they are looking for is a completely different kind of savior. On Easter afternoon, these guys are coming out and they're saying like, can you believe what just happened? We, We came to the city thinking this was going to happen, but now we're leaving. We thought he was the real deal. I guess we were wrong. Okay, I just want to interject uh, right here. Jesus knew exactly what kind of Savior, what kind of Messiah his disciples were expecting. Now, I don't know this uh, for a fact, but based on readings that I have done and inferences that I have taken, my understanding is that the traditional type of Judaism was the dominant type of Judaism. And the prophetic type of Judaism, where there's a suffering Savior, was the minority voice in Judaism. Also, let me just say, the suffering Savior metaphor uh, 
was not referring to an individual. It was referring to the nation of Israel. See many, many, many commentaries on, uh, on that point. And so almost no one, even those who were in the prophetic line, would have been expecting a Messiah like Jesus. That was not the expectation at all. And Jesus knew exactly what expectations, as I, as I mentioned, his disciples had, and yet he allowed them to go on believing falsely. He allowed them to follow him under false pretenses because he he knew what they ex- expected it, it doesn't matter that they were wrong they wouldn't have followed him if they had known and he let them go on thinking something that wasn't true even at this point even after he died his close disciples they were they were dejected why because their idea of what a Messiah was is not what Jesus turned out to be. And even at that stage, they still thought that's what Jesus meant. He clearly could have explained it to them. He clearly could have disabused them of these false notions about his Messiahship. He did not. And I find that a really dick move. Just a reminder again, it is very good news for us that God gives us the Savior we need, not necessarily the Savior we want. I mean, they're saying, my gosh, I thought Israel and Jerusalem was finally going to be rescued. Like, a week ago, we walked in thinking everything that we've been waiting for, everything that we've been hoping for, it is going to happen. And they had a reason to think that. You remember Jesus promised them 12 thrones. And you're going to rule in this kingdom, right? He, he wasn't speaking as if that was a spiritual reality. He was speaking as if it were a literal reality, playing exactly into their conquering authority fantasy. What are we supposed to do now? But Israel, this is the thing, had just been rescued. Israel and Jerusalem had just been redeemed. It's just that it was way, way, way bigger than they were looking for. It was completely different than what they were expecting. It's, it's the equivalent of a kid who turns 16. And for like the last 16 years, all he said to his dad is, Dad, when I turn 16, I want a 1989 Ford Thunderbird. That's what I want. And he, like that week before he finally turned 16, he's like, the Thunderbirds are coming. I can feel it. All that thinking, all that begging, all of that praying, crying out to God, Dad, give me the Thunderbird, the 1989 version. He gets to his birthday and his dad comes to him and is like, son, I didn't get you the Thunderbird. I got you a brand new Bentley. And the kid is like, are you kidding me? I wanted the Thunderbird. Why are you giving me this $500,000 car when I wanted the $200 clunker? I thought. I just want to say, I don't think his example is doing what he wants it to do. You know, maybe his son is a collector. Maybe his uh, son is a fan of antique cars. Clearly, money is not an object, so what his son is asking for is not an unreasonable thing. He knew that he could ask for a Bentley. <laughs> that wasn't, <laughs> it's not the point. What he wanted was 
that particular car, perhaps to complete his collection, and his dad saying, yeah, I know what you want, but I know better than you. But we were clear about what I wanted. <laughs> like, that's a bit of what's happening here. An another thing to notice before we kind of jump into the meat of this, there's a profound difference between knowing something and believing something. These are guys, it, this is what it says, they know the scriptures backwards and forwards. There's a very, very good chance that if they're the, just the average Jew, they have the majority of the Old Testament completely memorized. This, as near as I can tell, is utter bullshit. It's the kind of things uh, that Christians say, and I, you know, I think a lot of Christians who say it are just repeating what they've heard scholars say, but I, I don't think we have any reason to believe that their memories were so much better than ours and they had this superhuman ability to remember uh, verbatim all 39 books of the Old Testament. By the way, what what translation would they have been reading? There, was, there wasn't even an agreement on what constituted the Old Testament. Uh, would it surprise you to know that the Old Testament canon really didn't come into form until probably after the New Testament canon. It, it's been highly disputed. So this idea that, you know, they have this set book that they had memorized, because of course Christians need to say that, because this was oral tradition. The, these people couldn't read. So they, had, they have to pretend like this oral tradition had some kind of magic power associated with it so that they could memorize this very uh, evolved, involved uh, theological work. It's utterly absurd. All of it. So their, their issue isn't that they don't, like, in their minds, know the scriptures. The problem is that the, the, the movement from knowing to believing is a supernatural act they were not engaging with. The point of the Bible is not to know the Bible. The point of the Bible is to know God. You can know something without believing something. You can know that the resurrection happened and deny it every daggone day with how you live. I can know in my heart that sin will kill me, but not believe with my being and what I do. My behavior will tell you what I believe. There is, a, there is a chasm between what I know in my noggin and the way that I walk with my feet and my hands. And that's what we're seeing here, isn't it? Like, there's, there's a difference between knowing something and believing it. A, I mean, like, a chasm of difference between these things. All right, that's, that's the little intro. Meat of the passage. Here's the meat of the passage I want to dive into, because in this passage, Luke wrestles with a question that I think, hopefully, every single one of us should wrestle with. Um, at least one time in our life, and chances are multiple times in our life, and this is what it is. How do I know that the resurrection really happened? How do I know that it really happened? How do I know that it isn't like a fairy tale, like the Easter Bunny or some Hans Christian Andersen thing, or like this magical man who works his way down a chimney? All right. I, I also agree that this is a fundamental question that all Christians should ask if, if they don't. And I think his answers, drawn from the story, uh, and also in my notes, I, I didn't find this uh, video actually until after uh, I was done 
uh, with the draft of the write-up. But uh, he, he comes up with mostly the same answers that I do, and I, I find it very interesting. So let's, let's take a close look and see how it is Christians are supposed to know that Jesus really rose. If you see me get up and walk out, it's because I'm doing video, and so it's uh, hard to cut and splice, you know, video. It's easy to do with audio. So uh, I'm going to let this play. Don't worry. I've, I've heard all of it. <laughs> Anything that I need to comment on, uh, I'll come back on it, but I'm kind of suppressing a coughing spasm right now. I need to get some water, so I'm going to let this play uh, while I go and take care of my thirst. How do I know that it's not different than that? And in this passage, Luke shows three different ways that we can know that. Um, are there more than three? Yes. But we're just wrestling with this one passage, and I have to get on a plane. So we're just going to look at this. Uh, the first thing, how do we know that the resurrection really happened? If you go to the next slide, scripture and prophecy. So let's look at verse 25. This is what it says in verse 25. He said to them, how, this is Jesus, by the way, how foolish you are and how slow to believe that the, all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So th this is something that we might ask. How does Jesus himself explain what was, that he was going to be resurrected? How does he do it? Where does he start? Scripture. Where Jesus starts should tell us something. Where does he start? The Bible. This is what Tim Keller says. If Jesus didn't think he could live life well without knowing the scriptures inside and out, why would we? Long pause. But I can't pause for that much longer. Let's keep going. One way that we can, like, if you, if you read through the Old Testament, if you look at the things that are getting tied together, and all of the things from Genesis 1 on, they all point to one thing. And that thing is a face, a story, and a name. And his name is Jesus. All right. I just want to uh, say that this is, this is the sort of thing that, um, that some uh, Christians, many Christians say, you know, the Old Testament points to Jesus, and progressives are kind of in a box with this one. If the Old Testament points to Jesus, then you cannot discount the views of the Old Testament God as presented by the writers of the Old Testament. You can't do that. You can't kind of Martian... God out of the story and say, you know what, we're just going to put a placeholder there and we'll explain everything when Jesus enters the scene. If you're supposed to learn about Jesus from Moses and the prophets, then you have to understand and appreciate and recognize their God. So just an interesting idea. I think that... Um, we might be revisiting this idea. That's how we know that the resurrection really happens. Like, these things don't have, like, I, I won't go down that rabbit hole. I gotta keep going. Number two, 
the Lord's Supper. Look at what happens in verse 28. As they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went on to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. When we come to the table together, there is something that happens deep within us. And it is this crazy, mysterious, mystical thing that we can't quite put our finger on or like even really describe. And what it does in many ways, it does many things, but one thing is it almost deposits coins of faith into each of our individual faith piggy banks. Okay, so uh, he's about to make a different point before we get off of it uh, too far. I just want to point out something key in the story. We'll get back to it too, but uh, in the story, when their eyes were opened, Jesus vanishes. He disappears. Let's dog ear that page. So that our faith, every time we come to the table, it's like we meet Jesus again, and we meet him again, but we're meeting him again together. And it, our faith gets richer and richer and richer as more faith and coins are deposited and more and more and more in that faith piggy bank. There's something that happens when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus together, where our collective spirit just shouts from the rooftop, he is alive and I know it. I know it, not because I've read it, because I've experienced it. Number three, number three, you meet someone who's met Jesus. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while, we talked with, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So if we... Uh... Just look at his three points, his ways of knowing that Jesus rose. Search the scriptures. Partake in the Eucharist. And feel emotional. Hmm. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Peter. Just pause there for a second. Peter had said, like, I think he might be alive and no one else is really believing him. And this is Cleopas and this other dude who doesn't even have a name in the scripture. And is like, hey, Peter was telling the truth. Like he actually met him and we should believe him because we just had this crazy experience. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm the other guys who are hearing that in that room, this is my reaction. Good for you, Cleopas. And other dude who doesn't get a name check in the story. I'm happy for you. What about me? Like, when do I get to meet Jesus? I want to suggest to you that you have met Jesus. And if you can't own that, this is what I want to suggest. I want to suggest to you that you, like in this room, you know someone who has met Jesus. 
You've met someone who knows that resurrection is real because they have actually met the resurrected Lord. Okay, before we leave this point, did anyone else get a tinge of a fit of pique just now when he says, you actually have met Jesus? And if you won't own up to that, he's got this presupposition that whatever he means by meeting Jesus, that everybody actually has done it, whether you're a believer, whether you're not a believer, whether you were a believer and have fallen upon doubts, no matter what, if you say that you haven't met Jesus, you are just lying. This This is what he is saying. And so he has a second layer, which is he's going to fall back on. You, at the very least, know someone who's met Jesus. But I, I just wanted to point that out. This is an old play in the Christian playbook, because of course you know there's a God, and of course you know that Jesus is real and that he rose, and you've met him since his resurrection. And if you say that you're not, you're really just lying. And if you've never met someone who you think has ever met Jesus, then tonight, this is what I want to do. I'm going to actually ask the band to come up. Come on up. This is what I want to, I want to do. I want to serve as a proxy. Because some of you I know, some of you I do not know. But I can tell you, as sure as the sun is going down, to, down it's going down tonight, and it'll rise in the morning, um, I have met Jesus, and the resurrection is real. Okay, well, I guess we don't need any further exploration because this man guarantees that he has met Jesus and the resurrection is real. What more needs to be said? So what I want to do is um, I want to just do something that, like what you see in the scriptures is just like what we call a testimony. And all that means is I want to tell you a couple of times that I have met Jesus it is very important that you recognize this has zero to do with me. Um, this, all of this, this is just like, hey, this is Jesus. You should really know him. So, you know, if we're keeping score on how you know that Jesus was really resurrected, just listen to Christian testimony would be one of his answers. And if you haven't met him, I hope tonight is the night that you can. It wasn't the first time I met Jesus, but I was with Jesus when I was in seventh grade. Uh, One of my legs was three inches shorter than the other. Um, And it was causing just unbelievable pain. There's like this really weird hip thing that it was doing. Um, And it was really hard. And it had some very, I won't get into it, it had some very embarrassing side effects. Um, And I met Jesus when my grandfather stretched me out on the kitchen floor with my parents standing over me. He put his hands on my head. He prayed a simple prayer. And my right leg grew three inches. Wasn't my heart burning within me because I was with Jesus right then. Okay, amen. Clap, 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 clap. No one in this audience says, hey brother, did you, did you bring the x-rays and the medical reports? Look at how they just accept this as a true happening. This is Christian testimony after all. And Christian testimony is given the weight of fact for many Christians. And they wonder why we skeptics roll our eyes. I met the resurrected Jesus a year and a half later. When we gathered to celebrate the death of that same grandfather, and people from across the United States came to celebrate a quiet missionary man of little means, 
who had lived the giant life of faithfulness. Wasn't my heart burning within me because Jesus was there? Okay, here's another evidence. You had a funeral and you felt emotional. I guess that seals the deal. I met the resurrected Jesus on a rainy day in upstate New York. I was 19 years old when I hydroplane into oncoming traffic. I get hit by an SUV coming the other way, going 80 miles an hour, tearing my car in two separate pieces. I walked away without a scratch, and as it was happening, I heard him say, I spared you for something. Wasn't my heart burning within me because Jesus was there? I sensed the resurrected Jesus with me even when I denied his existence and for three years lived as an avowed atheist. When I had destroyed my life, when I had torched every relationship, buried myself in debt, brought humiliation to my family, spit all the venom that I had within me and gave myself to any addiction I could find, I heard the words out of nowhere, there is still grace for you, I'm still here. Wasn't my heart burning within me because Jesus was there, I have met him. I met the resurrection Jesus when I said my first prayer in three years, praying that he would just take the life of my dying cat so I would not have to be the one to take him to the vet to put him down. I come down the stairs in the morning and literally the presence of Jesus flattened me on my face like that. And I, because I saw my beloved stupid cat had quietly passed away in the night. Wasn't my heart burning within me? Jesus. Oh, God. I, can, I, I can't make it through this a second. Okay. No. This was there. I met the resurrected Jesus when I came to the end of myself in the first church I was planning 10 years ago. And he told me he was the one who would build his church, not me. I was with the resurrected Jesus when he, I got the phone call. That my... My wife had a malignant tumor the size of a baseball in her throat three months after giving birth to our second son. And I saw his resurrection power when he miraculously healed the cancer and the doctors did not know what to say about it four days later. I was with the resurrected Jesus when he found ourselves in the pit two years later. We were sitting outside an emergency room. We did not have any money. My wife could not stop crying because her back was spasming with three herniated discs. And we could not decide if we were going to go in the emergency room because our, our insurance would not cover it. And we did not have money. But was not my heart burning within me because Jesus was right there. I was with the resurrected Jesus when he gave me two years in a church in Florida that I never would have picked, that proved to be exactly what we needed, not the rescue that I wanted, but the one that I needed, a time of rest and healing and new possibility. Was my heart not burning within me when I got the call to that church? I was with the resurrected Jesus when I was on a train in the UK. I was going from Liverpool to London, and the Lord told me that, he was, that we were going to come home to Richmond. I, I literally wrote it down on the back of a book. I looked at it today. It's a book called Facing Leviathan. And he showed me how he had been miraculously orchestrating this move for more than 30 years. Was not my heart burning within me? I was with the resurrected Jesus when last year on Easter Sunday, I spoke in tongues for the very first time. And I had spent 10 years praying for that gift. Was my heart not burning within me because Jesus was right there? I met him. 
I was with the resurrected Jesus when he led my little girl to faith. Giving her a revelation all her own that he was alive and she met him. Wasn't my heart burning within me when I heard that, when I sensed him right there? Wasn't it burning inside me when I got to baptize her? I was with the resurrected Lord this morning when emotionally grappling with aspects of leading this church, Jesus was there and used our elders to come around me. Was my heart not burning within me because Jesus was there? I'm married to a woman named Elizabeth. I have a thousand stories of how I met her. Some of you know some of them. There are thousands of them. These are a few stories of how I've met Jesus, a few of them. Is it not burning within us right now at this very moment? Friends, I don't come to you with wise or persuasive words, clever arguments or anything of consequence other than this. I have met Jesus. He is alive. He has risen from the dead, just as he said. This is what I can tell you. The resurrected Jesus is with us. He is in this room tonight. And in a moment, we are going to throw down and we are going to worship him. If you raise from the dead and you're God, we worship you. So here's my one and only question tonight. Is your heart burning within you? Okay. Well, let me at least agree on something that I can give full-throated agreement with. Uh, Pastor No Name, you indeed did not come with wise or persuasive words. Amen. Let's hope I can do better. <laughs> so, so, um... That is for us. There will be more episodes of uh, for us. Probably not next week, but there'll be more of those. But let's turn to uh, red letters and let's turn to more of the end of the road because there's more to be said, more to be learned from the road to Emmaus. And the first place I want to start is a place where I wasn't at when I started the book project. So somewhere over the course of years, and I don't know where exactly the turn happened, I stopped viewing the Bible, in particular the Gospels, as if they were simple attempts to express history. Now, I sometimes talk about it as if the the gospels were simple attempts to express history that that which really happened because that's how Christians insist on us thinking about it. Now I know not all Christians do, but the Christians that I often uh debate online they insist that that is what the Bible is. The Bible is a history. 
It's not allegory. It's not poetry. It's history. It's an honest attempt to say what really happened and when and where. So if we skeptics lean on that idea a little bit too heavily and in places where maybe we shouldn't, have a little pity on us. We are only viewing the Bible in the framing that Christians gave us to view it. But I find that Christians, many of them, most of them, don't even know what the Gospels say. Let alone do they know anything about literature or, or genres or even historical framing. So um, I don't feel like I have to engage with Christians based on their framing of the Gospels. And I feel like I have the right to step outside of that. I mean, Christians believe what they believe, and I, I try to deal with Christians where they are. But when they say things about the Gospels and what they're supposed to be, I, I just think they're factually wrong because they don't understand literature. No, I'm no literary expert either. But I have put in a lot of the heavy lifting to do the work and to try to fill in the gaps of my own ignorance. And I've done this for several years. And so I feel like I am at a pretty good place to be able to at least enter the discussion about genres and how uh, the Gospels should be viewed. So the change I am made and that I am owning up to now is that I do not any longer view the Gospels entirely as an honest attempt to give a historical account of what really happened and what was really said and where. I believe that's true for some of it. I don't believe it's true for all of it. Furthermore, I can't be sure of where we should look at the Gospels as a literal attempt to describe history and where it's not. Okay, it's not just a simple matter of literal versus figurative, although maybe it can be reduced to that point. It's a matter of understanding what sacred texts are and what Gospels are in particular. Gospels are a genre unto themselves. And the, the genre of Gospels has absolutely nothing to do with portraying facts about history. It has nothing to do with portraying facts about history. They're kind of like hagiographies in that they're a, a type of hero worship. And that often leads to legend. But it's more than hagiography. I think Gospels are more than that. What, what Gospels are really trying to do, besides give you a favorable view of heroes, is they're trying to teach you hidden spiritual truths. That is the point of Gospels. 
they have nothing to do with telling you what happened, what someone said, what someone did, and where and when. It, it Nothing to do with that at all. This is why the timing of events can just be changed from one author to another. There's, a, there's an event that uh, maybe happens at the end of a three-year ministry in the synoptics, and in that same event happens at the beginning of a one-year ministry in John. This is clearly not an attempt to say what happened and when. So then we have to understand, well, what, what is it then? Gospels are, I'll say it again, the effort to reveal spiritual truths. And it simply uses words and stories and events as the framing for those spiritual truths. Not a single word of it has to be true for the spiritual truth to come through. So this is, um, this is a genre of Gospels, especially. And, you know, in, in a broader sense, this is the genre of all sacred text. So let me just broaden this out a little bit. No sacred text is concerned about facts. No sacred text, no part of any sacred text, even the books of history of a sacred text, is not actually concerned about history. It is just using a historical framing to talk about the spiritual truth that the writer wants to talk about. And they can use a historical framing for that. They can use a poetic framing for that. They, they, can, they can use all of the tools uh, within literary genres to do that. But you should not take any of those literary genres as... Um, as good examples of those genres. So for instance, Jesus uses parables, but as I've already discussed in previous episodes, Jesus was awful at parables. He actually turned parables on their heads. He didn't actually use parables to make his message simpler for people to understand. He used parables to shroud his meanings. That is not what parables are for. So was Jesus just bad at parables? Well, Yes, <laughs> if, if you take them at face value, yes, but that's not the point. The point of the parables was not to show you what parables look like. The point of the parables was to reveal spiritual truths. And it really didn't matter how badly the genre of parable was mangled. The same is true when things are placed in a historical uh, framing. And so you look at it and you say, well... But that, that doesn't align with what we know of history. Or these authors are contradicting uh, each other on what happened and when and who was involved and so forth. Well, yes, all of that's true, except none of that matters. It doesn't matter to the writer and it shouldn't matter to us. Because what they are trying to do is not tell you anything useful about history. They are trying to reveal a spiritual truth. And they are just using uh, the, the historical language as a kind of framing. It's a, it's a delivery mechanism for those spiritual truths. 
Now, that's not to say that there are no historical facts within uh, sacred texts. But of course there were. There were high priests. You know, that's, that's not made up. Uh, whether they were the high priests that were named, I don't know if we can ever know that. But there were certainly high priests. There were kings. There was a, you know, a political structure. You know, all of these things are... Uh, discussed. Many of them are real. There are places that were real. There were, you know, some of the distances between the places and the way you had to get there was very real. So, uh, you know, when you look at something like a sacred text, you shouldn't assume that everything, every detail is false, but you also shouldn't assume that any details are true. If they're true, they're true by coincidence. They're, they're true as a secondary effect of telling the story. They're not true because the author was trying to tell you truths about how many miles it was between Jerusalem and Emmaus. Uh, they don't they don't really care <laughs> about about that sort of thing. Now, as I said, it's really hard to tell the difference when an author is trying to say something true about the universe and when they're just using that framing to say something spiritual. A good rule of thumb is to think, well, they're always trying to say something spiritual. And only sometimes trying to say something true. And if something sounds really funny to your ear, it sounds really weird, really obvious that the writer should know is, is a factual blunder. Well, assume that maybe that writer does know that that would be a factual blunder. But that's not why he chose to write it. Right, so you're you're reading it in a way that the writer didn't intend, probably. Okay, there it's also true that writers made factual blunders. <laughs> right, that's that's just that's just a fact, and we can we can catch them at that. But it's it's unimportant. It's kind of like when preachers tell stories, kind of like this uh, preacher we just heard. It's kind of like when preachers tell stories in their sermons. And someone does some research and discovers, wait a minute, that's not true. They do not lose a single member of their uh, congregation because of it. You know, preachers tell these stories, these made-up stories, all the time. When I was young, I used to uh, listen to uh, sermons on the radio. Yeah, I was, I was that kid. Um, and I would hear preachers using stories, personal stories, that they cribbed from other preachers. <laughs> so, because it made for a good story. And so, they would use those stories as if it happened to them. And I finally came to realize, you know what, there's a good chance this story never happened to anybody. There was, there was never an original person that this happened to. This is just a story. It's just a good story, and it delivers, it's a good delivery me mechanism for the message. So, um, so it is that when you read the Gospels, it should not overly derail the Gospel attempt. Simply because you catch the authors in an error or even a lie. Because it's not really a lie. It's just not the point. If you, if you pointed it out to the authors, they would say, yeah, 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 yeah. But look at, look at the point that I'm trying to make, right? In the road to Emmaus story, this is one of the places where the theology is only thinly veiled. This is not a story that happened. I'm 
fairly certain of it. Why is Cleopas named and not the other guy? It, someone might can look it up or do some research. I suspect Cleopas had some meaning. You know, like David means beloved. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, has a, a certain meaning. Lots of lots of the names of carriers have this this kind of coincidental meaning with some aspect of their lives or ministry that's important. Cleopas probably falls into that category. I didn't look it up. I don't care. Um, but the preacher mentioned that only one of them got a name. The other one didn't, and we never hear from these guys again. These very important disciples. It's interesting. They were so important. They were so close. They were on a first-name basis with Peter. They could uh, walk in and talk to the Twelve at any time. We never heard of them before. <laughs> we never heard of them before. We only, we only get one of their names. We never hear from them again. This is kind of a sign that this is just a story. Okay, there's these these people were put on the stage to convey a message. We convey the message and then we're done with them. They lived and died for this story. Uh, there are other clues inside of this Road to Emmaus story that even if you are a biblical literalist, you can begin to think to yourself, well, wait a minute. This doesn't seem to make any sense as a literal happening. So in the story, uh, one of the elements of the story is that Jesus did not allow himself to be recognized. Now put a a pin in this one, and someone can do uh, a little bit of research because I'm out of the research business for a little while, and I didn't do it for this podcast. But uh, if you want to play translation roulette, you can find translations that uh, say something to the effect that these disciples didn't recognize Jesus, and then later they did recognize Jesus. But in other translations, what you will see is Jesus didn't allow himself to be recognized. And then he opened their eyes and allowed himself to be recognized. Those are two different things. I don't know which one is right exactly, but if you're, if you're trying to read this literally, it, it, neither one of them really makes sense. I mean, if they were close enough to be on first name on a first name basis with the with the twelve, they would have recognized Jesus, right? I mean, they they just saw him a couple of days ago, right? They didn't forget what he looked like and sounded like. And this was a daytime visit. You know, when I first started talking about this story several years ago, uh, I talked about it as if it was at night and they couldn't recognize him. That's not true. This was a this was a daytime uh, walk, as near as I can tell. And um, they had full ability to recognize him, but it just it's just one of those situations where, again, the close disciples didn't recognize Jesus. This doesn't make sense. 
because of course they would have recognized Jesus. So if you read it the other way and you say, well, okay, Jesus didn't allow them to be recognized. That makes even less sense. <laughs> that, doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't buy you anything as far as a reasonable explanation of what's going on here. Theologically, I think it makes plenty of sense. I think there, there are lots of ways to tell this story, strictly theologically speaking. I, I won't go into that, but I, I will just say that this is one example where if you're trying to read this as a literalist, you've got two options here of the reading. Neither option makes sense. And again, this, is, this looks like one of those places where the author is telling us, he's broadcasting to us, don't take this literally. I'm, I'm giving a spiritual message here. Okay. Uh, so even if you do tend to be a, a biblical literalist and one who treats the Gospels as history, I would say, at the very least, you have reason to treat this story as something else. And uh, I had to come to that reality as well uh, a few years a few years ago. So enough talk about genre. Let's look at a few more details. I won't belabor this overly long. At least I'll try not to. So this is a journey of rediscovery for Cleopas and some say it was his wife. So I'll just say Cleopas and his wife. I can live with that. Could have been. Doesn't matter. They're fictional characters. Doesn't matter. Um, this journey of rediscovery. I, I want you to notice something about the characters. They were not non-believers. They were believers. And in fact, they were believers of the highest order. They weren't casual believers. They were deep in the inner circle believers. They were among the first to hear the news that the tomb was empty. Who would have heard that? No, the word would not have gotten around at all. No one would have known it at all except the insiders. You know, it's not like they put out a bulletin to uh, all the people who lived in Jerusalem. No one would have known about this at all. The, uh, not, not enough time had passed for word to even get around by word of mouth. A telephone game wouldn't have, wouldn't have done it. Only a handful of people, these people, they were among the first to know. That's how insidery they are. They, they were. Jesus actually comes to visit them and walks seven miles with him. That's how insidery they were, because Jesus didn't do that with just anybody. But now, once again, reading the story literally, it doesn't make sense, because what uh, Cleopas says to Jesus is, wait a minute, are you the only one? You must be the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened. Okay, just, just hold that thought for a moment. 
Nobody in Jerusalem knew what happened. <laughs> like I just like I just said, these events that they're talking about, uh, I mean, some people would have known about the crucifixion, probably not a lot. Another insurrectionist is uh, put to death by Rome, News at 11. It's a, this is not um, that big of a deal. Not that many people would have followed that except the interested parties. But they're talking about the resurrection here. And, and as I just pointed out, only a handful of people would have known about that. By the way, only a handful of people would have known about the trial because it was a secret trial. <laughs> it was illegal and secret and all of that. So, um, right then. And yet, what Cleopas, or Cleopas, I, how do you pronounce that? I'm just going to keep calling him Cleopas. What he says to Jesus, you must, are you the only guy who doesn't know about this stuff? As if this was common knowledge. And yet we know it couldn't have been common knowledge. You take this literally. This makes no sense. So let's take a step back. See if we can figure out who these characters really are. Okay, so this is written by Luke. Someone who never met Jesus. Written decades after the purported events. Christian communities had sprang up and down and up and down. Probably a couple generations by this point. The Lucan community was probably a lot like the Johannine community in that they were people who need to be, needed to be reassured about their faith because they were falling away. They were starting to go into heresies and following various heretical teachings because whatever teaching they had initially, whatever faith they had initially, it was wearing off. And suddenly this whole faith stuff wasn't adding up for them. They were demanding evidence, all kinds of things. These things happen when uh, church communities are around for a while. I imagine the Lucan community was just like that. So Luke puts in the mouth of his character, Cleopas, that everybody knows about these events. And I suspect that would be true if you're talking about Christian communities several decades later. Right? Everybody knows about the facts. True. But if you read it literally as if these people were speaking contemporarily, then no. Everybody didn't know. So I suspect this is Luke, a part of his sermon. He's saying, look, everybody knows the basic facts about Jesus. And Luke uh, uses a device where he is the voice of Jesus and Cleopas is the voice of the average member of his congregation, the average, what he saw of as the average Christian. And so Luke Jesus comes alongside them and he asks them, so tell me about this. What do you know about Jesus? Now, interestingly, another author does the same thing 
has Jesus asking his disciples, whom do men say that I am? And then whom do you say that I am? Okay. This is a, a fairly common Socratic uh, bit of methodology. So Luke Jesus says, tell me about this Jesus or tell me what you know. And then Cleopas, the aka the average Christian at this time, decades later, gives a very good, I think, you know, interesting, there's some points of interest there, but a very reasonable synopsis of the Christian story as it would have been told at that time. And what he gives are the facts. Just the facts. He talks about the events and the winds and the wares and the hows. Interestingly enough, in these facts, Cleopas never calls Jesus God. Did you, did you catch that in the reading? He calls Jesus a prophet. One uh, with a powerful word and deed. That he doesn't even say that Jesus is a miracle worker. Someone of, of power doesn't mean that you work miracles. You know, powerful deeds don't mean miracles. A lot of people produce powerful deeds today. They, they don't need to be miracle workers to do that. In the same way, someone can speak powerful words today. That doesn't make them God. And so in this story... Cleopas, who gives a pretty good synopsis of Jesus, never once refers to him as God. That's interesting. I think, that, I think that's interesting and uh, maybe a thread to be picked up at another time. Not this season, but... He gives the facts, and then Jesus, a.k.a. Luke, does something that is very own brand with Jesus. He blows up and becomes very insulting. You fools! You slow fools! Was there anything that Cleopas said that warranted that. <laughs> I don't think so. Um, but that's Jesus. Uh, we've, we've seen him do that many times. Not a nice guy. Um, all right, you fools. Why don't you believe what the prophets have said? I can answer that for you, Luke Jesus. They didn't believe what the prophets said about Jesus because the prophets never said anything about Jesus. <laughs> That's why. Because anyone teaching the prophets at that time or even before would not have seen Jesus in the prophecy at all. At all. That's why. So it's not like they didn't believe the prophecies. 
And let's just give them the credit that they knew the prophecies and that they knew Moses. It's not that they didn't know that. The Jews know that today. They don't see Jesus in it. They don't see Jesus in it. That is a particularly Jesus-centric way of reading the Old Testament. We call this religious syncretism for a reason. This is an effort to link the new thing, Christianity, with the old thing, Judaism. And one of the ways you do that is you co-opt the sacred text of the old thing. And you interpret it in a way uh, that leads to the new thing. And that helps the people who are clinging to the old thing make the transition. The syncretism. So, yeah, Cleopas, he wasn't on board with the syncretism. <laughs> he didn't see it because nobody saw it. Because that's not how anyone, even the priestly Jews, that's not how they read scripture. That is, that is not how they interpret it. And so, if you want to know the real innovation of Jesus, it's reading the Old Testament in a unique way that reads him into the story. That's uh, that's what Jesus did. Sorry, my, my throat is very near going. So the very interesting thing, and uh, the preacher pointed this out to his credit. It's kind of where his sermon begins. The very interesting thing here is that Jesus... It, allow me to paraphrase. Basically says, all you know are the useless facts of the Gospels. Now, this is Luke who's actually writing a Gospel. But there were Gospels before Luke. There's reason to believe that Luke had Matthew and Mark in front of him and his community would have had it too. And Luke wasn't overly fond of those Gospels. And so, Luke is saying to his community through Jesus to Cleopas. All you know are the useless facts about a story with no relevant facts. That's not what Gospels are for. It's not to teach you these facts about events, you goddamn fool. Don't you know anything? Why are you so slow? So Jesus says, if you want to know the real truth about me, and whenever we get a lead in like this, we have to lean in real close. Because this is important. If you want to know the real truth about me, just see how I loved people. Is not any part of what he said. If you want to know the real truth about me, here I am, I've risen from the graves, yo. No, he didn't say that either. If you want to know the real truth about me, then recall all of the words I had to say about me being God and all the miracles I did to prove it. No, he didn't say any of that. He didn't say any of that. 
He said, if you want to know the real truth about me, the deep spiritual meanings, you know, the parts that matter, forget about those useless facts and open your Bible. And Bible at that time meant the Old Testament. And once again, we're not entirely sure what parts of the Old Testament Jesus would have even called the Bible. But he called out specifically Moses and the prophets. Okay. This is very odd. Jesus is right there in front of them. He knows that they lived through various events. And he says, if you want to know the real truth about me, start with Moses and read through the prophets. Open your Bible. I believe this is Luke talking to his congregation, Cleopas. At a time when there is no one alive who was an eyewitness to Jesus or the events. So he couldn't tell them to lean on those things. There was no one there who ever saw them. He couldn't lean on the idea that Jesus rose and was right there in front of them because none of them saw the risen Jesus. He couldn't lean on the idea that Jesus raised the dead through his ministry, and he had them raising the dead too. He showed them the, the trick of miracles and so forth, because none of the people Luke is talking to ever experienced any of that. So Luke is very limited in the things he could put in, in Jesus' mouth at this point. He can't say any of those things that seem to be obvious to us, because he's talking to people decades later who don't have any of the obvious things that might have been said. So what he does is he has Jesus say the one thing that they could still do. Open your Bible. Study your Bible. That's where you'll find information about Jesus. Even John's Jesus acknowledged that you search the scriptures for they are they which testify of me. You search the scriptures. Paul, when he describes Jesus or something that Jesus uh, said or did or championed, he doesn't talk about the, the historical event of it or the time that he said something uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. He refers to scripture, speaking of the Old Testament scriptures, because none of the Gospels would have been floating around during his time. So even Paul, he says, if you want to know about Jesus, search the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. You remember the Bereans, they were mentioned, maybe, I can only think of uh, one time they were mentioned, but the Bereans were considered more noble. You know, when Paul preached to them, they searched the scriptures to see if what he said was true. Now notice what the Bereans didn't do. The Bereans didn't take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to see an empty tomb. The Bereans didn't look to see what miracles were going around in the name of Jesus. 
the Bereans didn't go and talk to someone who was raised by the dead, uh, raised from the dead by Paul. No, what the Bereans did was they went to the Old Testament. That's, that's how they did it. And while we're on the subject of the empty tomb, yes, we can throw that under the bus too, because Cleopas knew about the empty tomb. He knew about all of the things that Christians today consider good evidences. They didn't consider it good evidence. It wasn't good evidence for them. And Jesus doesn't point them to any of that quote-unquote good evidence. He points them to the same thing that preachers have to point to today. And the same thing that skeptics have been uh, shouting about for a long time. You believe it because it says so in a book. He points them to a book. And not even the contemporary book that we have today. He points them to the Old Testament. And instead of saying, if you want to know about the Old Testament God, look at me. What he says is, if you want to know about me, look at the Old Testament God. And that is a consistent message throughout his ministry and throughout the ministry of the people who followed him. You cannot Martianize the Old Testament and come to know anything useful about Jesus. Okay. I feel like I could stop right there. <laughs> but... You know I'm not going to do that. Uh, okay. So, um, I'll just mention uh, briefly, uh, evidentialists. They're squirming in their seats right now. Because here is yet another time when someone could have said, well, consider the evidences that are all around you. No. The tools, and I'll just crib from the preacher's notes who gave us the sermon a few minutes ago, the tools for ver validating your faith in Jesus are read the Bible, talk to other people who have testimonies, and fire in the belly. Your, your, your emotional response. Jesus doesn't give anything remotely resembling evidence. He gives them the Bible, other people's testimony, and emotional response. Now, one of the things about other people's testimony... So when we talk about the women at the tomb, uh, we often say they saw, uh, they encountered angels, and the angels said, uh, you know, why are you looking for Jesus here? He's risen. You know, that's the story. Except the story that Cleopas tells is that the women saw visions of angels. They didn't see angels at all. They saw visions of angels. They knew about the angels from a vision. They heard about the angels' message from a vision. Now, that's how Cleopas describes it, and Jesus doesn't correct them. Christians have visions all the time, and, and you know, some of the more contemporary uh, Christians cringe at that a little bit, discount that, and recognize that this is not good evidence. 
but this is what this is what they were leaning on then and, and we just need to understand that and when paul talked about the people that jesus appeared to he was not talking about a physical jesus physically appearing to people he's talking about people who had visions of the risen jesus hallucinations now why do we know that because he said they saw jesus just like i did and i was you know a little late getting there but he wasn't suggesting that his was any different in fact, he seems to make a connection that theirs was just like his, and his was visionary. He thought that everybody, the only way anyone knew Jesus was through visions. This is perhaps why he didn't think that much of Peter, James, and John. They're just guys with visions, just like me. Not that they were people who walked with Jesus for three years, having left their families and homes. Cleopas says that the women, they, they had visions. Yeah, this is, a, this is a bad place for evidentialists. And so as we walk on the road to Emmaus, when they get to where they're going, night is coming and Jesus pretends to keep going. I don't know what that's all about. It's okay. Writers having a little fun. That's fine. And they're like, oh, no, 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 please stay. And they act like they're concerned about him, but they're, they really just want to know more. And maybe that is the, the point. If you want to know about Jesus, you've got to really desire it. And so when it looks like Jesus is walking away from you. You have to have the incentive to run after him. You got to show that you want it. So the Cleopas family does, does that. And so they sit down to eat. And then Jesus does this thing that sparks a memory in them. But once again, uh, the story is a little bit weird here because they don't, it doesn't really spark a memory as much as Jesus allows them to recognize him. Yeah. Just matter all that much, but again, very interesting. So Jesus breaks bread. And what we have is this Eucharistic moment, this moment where Jesus says, we're not going to do this again until we do it in the kingdom anew. And here they are having this Eucharistic moment. And they say to themselves, oh, wait a minute. We've been here before. We've seen this before. Deja vu. This has got to be the guy. This is the one. This is the man. Jesus, you were in poof. Just like that, up in a puff of smoke, Jesus vanishes. He disappears. There are um, some places in the Bible where it seems like Jesus kind of does a vanishing act, but it, it could be read in a way that it was fairly mundane. There was a, a time when the mob was coming to get him and he slipped from them. Some say he, he disappeared. Uh, 
the uh, room where the disciples were hiding out, the doors were locked, and suddenly Jesus is there. It doesn't say that he didn't have a key and walk in, okay? But that's often read as Jesus walked through the walls. But I don't, I don't think that we have to believe that in those cases. Here, we have to believe it. We have to, the, the author is very, very clear about this fact. Jesus disappeared. Vanishing act right before their eyes. This is a sermon. This is theology. I have my guesses as to what it means. You can come up with your own. But I think it's significant to note that Jesus doesn't vanish until they get it. But once they get it, once they have the epiphany, oh wait, Jesus is with us, then he disappears. I believe it is a way it serves a couple of purposes. It's a way of explaining why we don't have Jesus anymore. I mean, he's... He disappears. He, he didn't have a mission that lasted beyond the point of just letting his disciples know who he was. And then he leans on testimony. And so now these disciples have a story and they can spread the testimony. They don't actually need a living Jesus anymore at that point. From the moment that that their testimony becomes secure in their mind. They don't need a real Jesus anymore. I think that's true today also. Once people get a testimony, it kind of takes the place of having anything real and tangible. And I think that church leaders, especially during that time in that late first century, they needed to tell their audiences that you don't need an actual Jesus. Once your eyes are opened to the spiritual truths, you can let go of a physical Jesus. You can let go of a Jesus that's physically coming back, riding a cloud or a fiery chariot or whatever you think he's going to ride. You can let go of your childlike clinging to this Jesus. He has given you what you need. Now go forth and live it. And what Luke wants to do is reignite that moment, that Eucharistic moment where it burned within them the deep spiritual truths that you could learn all the way back from Moses. And when you have that, you don't need the other stuff. You don't need the useless facts. You can let all of that go. Because you have the essence of the real Jesus. You've got the real seeing. And so this other stuff can vanish. I actually think that was Luke's message. Could be wrong.
What do you think Luke was trying to say? One thing's for sure, he's not recording history. But he does come to a conclusion at the end of the road to Emmaus that when you have your true spiritual epiphany, you no longer have to cling to childlike stories and ideas of Jesus. And I want to come alongside Luke and say, Amen, brother. I agree. And so I want to reframe that message just a little and present it as my final message of this final episode of the first season of Red Letters. Let's talk about spiritual truths for the unspiritual. At the end of the day, the kingdom is just a metaphor. It's all a metaphor. The kingdom is just a metaphor for humans living their best life with one another. That we all can live that best life together. And so in that sense, I am a child of the kingdom. I want the same thing. But I don't need a Jesus to get me there. Jesus is an enigma wrapped in a riddle, wrapped in a burrito, and as far as I'm concerned, that's a perfectly terrible waste of a good burrito. We don't need the Jesus filling to give us spiritual truths. Luke said as much. Jesus is right there, and he says, you don't need me to tell you anything about me for your spiritual truth. You have it right there in your Old Testament. The Moses and the prophets, you already have what it takes for your spiritual truths. And if I could just reframe that a little bit, I would just say uh, to those of you who are looking for deep truths about deep, deep mysteries in life, you don't need any kind of spiritualization to do it. You already have everything you need for spiritual truths. And what is a spiritual truth? Well, to me, a spiritual truth is just wise ideas about best practices of how to live socially and individually. That's it. You don't need spirituality to figure that out. In fact, I would say that spirituality gets in the way. You know why we no longer, you know, as men, take our clubs and bash a woman on the head and drag her into our cave by the, the hair and call ourselves a family. You know why we stopped doing that? Because it just led to wars <laughs> and early graves. It was a bad way to put together a lasting society. We don't need anyone to come along and tell us not to do this. We figured it out. Took us a thousand years, but okay, we got there. Probably took us more than that. Probably took us a lot more than that, considering what we know about humans. And so Jesus doesn't really add anything 
to the table when he says, love one another. No, duh. Okay. We've known for a long time that love is a fairly positive uh, emotion that can help society building. Right. If, if you have decided that you're a social creature and what you want are uh, large societies that are functional, it's better to promote love over hate. We don't need some guru coming along thousands of years after we figured that out and pretending like this was a new command. We don't need that. That doesn't help us get there. So what about the worst people in our society? Well, guess what? We should want the best for all members of our society, even the worst of our society. And that might mean going through some kind of rehabilitation. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that you let everybody run free and do whatever they want you. It, it might mean that you have to lock someone up and pump them full of drugs for uh, a number of years. You know, we're still working it out. I don't, I don't know what the right answer is for how to love the worst people in our society. But we have been trying to figure that out for a very long time. And Jesus coming along and saying something like, love your enemies just confuses the situation. It does not help the situation at all. Uh, it would have been nice if he had given some practical advice about that. He doesn't. He's, he's just platitudes and bumper stickers. And here we are doing the real work of trying to figure out how to be our best selves socially and individually. Spirituality doesn't get us there. So, yeah. Read the write-up. It's pretty good. Um, I'll cut it off at that point. I think it's time that as a species... We take Luke's advice. We get the bits of wisdom that we can from a character like Jesus. And we get it, we get it in our minds real good, and then we let it go. We let go of this myth of Jesus and grab onto the reality of what good we think he might have given us. And then we get on about the business of doing the good. Because once you do that, you don't need a Jesus anymore. We don't need a Martin Luther King anymore. We get it. We, we have to implement. I don't think we'd have been any further down the road if Martin, King, Martin Luther King had stayed alive, but we needed uh, to be awakened to certain awarenesses, certain social truths, we got it. Martin Luther King can vanish. He'll never be forgotten, but we don't need him to carry on the work of building the kingdom. We don't need Gandhi. We don't need the Buddha. We don't need Vishnu. We don't need Muhammad. All of these people have taken their stages and they have left their insight. And when people got it, they vanished and left the people to work it out. 
One day, I'll vanish. But you don't need me either. <laughs> Just get the insight. And then get on about the work of building the kingdom, the society that is available for all people to live their best lives. And so it is, I say, to the work. Bye-bye.